Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. Traders, welcome to episode 216. Thank you for joining me. My guest is billionaire investor, entrepreneur, and philanthropist, Jim Mellon of Burnbray Group. Jim got his start in Hong Kong as a trainee fund manager in 1979. When the fund was acquired eight years later, Jim received a windfall, becoming a millionaire in his late 20s. And from that point forward, Jim has spread his bets far and wide as an investor in emerging markets, commercial real estate, private and public companies across many sectors, from financial services to mining to biotech and more. Our chat starts with some of the initial steps for how Jim launched his investing career. I then quiz Jim on what actions have led him to become a billionaire, how he judges worthwhile risk, greatest setbacks, and lastly, how Jim positions himself to profit from a sector which he's identified as having great potential upside. Now, I ask this knowing Jim's currently placing big bets on alternative meat and dairy products and disruptive agriculture. While I've briefly summarized some of Jim's 40-year investing career, just here, and we talk about parts of it during the podcast also, if you'd like further detail, I do encourage you to read Jim's Wikipedia profile, which I'll link in the show notes. And now, folks, I present to you special guest, Jim Mellon. Jim, I know you've done many interviews over the years and it's quite possible that you're a little bit bored of speaking about this, but you know, it is pretty rare that I get to sit down with someone who has amassed a fortune like you have. So for someone like me, and of course I'm speaking on behalf of my audience here, you know, I'm naturally very curious about the path you took to get there and really just how the hell you did it. <laughs> so I know probably the starting point for you was your move to Hong Kong where you became a fund manager. I mean, how did you wind up in that position and like, had you done any investing prior to that? No, um, I don't very much. I get a similar job today 
So basically, I left university. Well, before I left university, actually, they had something in England at the time called the Milk Round, when the companies would come to the universities and interview people, and you'd either be offered jobs or not. And I was offered a job with Clark Shoes, which is now a bankrupt British shoe manufacturer, and a stockbroker in the city of London. Uh, that's still going, actually. And then I was also offered a job by this obscure little company in Hong Kong. And I took the Hong Kong one because I really wanted to go overseas. And I had I didn't know what a bond was. I didn't really know what a stock was. Um, there wasn't some sort of online course then that could educate me. Um, there wasn't sort of stock markets for dummies, you know, those sort of books that they have now. There was nothing. So I turned up. They bought me a suit. I sat in an office with 20 other people in a big sort of round circle. And that was it. Hard to believe that fax was the way of communication in those days. There was a little market terminal for the Japanese stock market, which I worked on, uh, where you tapped in numbers and it showed you what the price was and some basic information. But apart from that, there was none of today's um, accoutrements in terms of trading or fund management or analysis. And then uh, about a year into that, uh, the same company opened up in San Francisco and I got sent there. And that was a great opportunity because the US market was on its knees, was about to have a huge recovery. And it was the start of the big technology boom that we're all familiar with. And so uh, I, I think there was a huge element of luck, Aaron. You know, it, it wasn't a sort of self-made uh, journey. It was just a lucky coincidences for me. Yeah, I guess you did kind of take that big step of moving from the UK to Hong Kong to take a job which you had <laughs> really no idea that you would be taking up until that point. What sort of fund was it? Like given you had no prior investing experience, wh what kind of things were you investing in and, and were you like pressing the button to buy sell? Yeah, it's a good question. So basically, the company was called GT Management, and it still exists today in the form of LGT, which is a massive, great big um, worldwide investment group that stands for Liechtenstein Global Trust. But in those days, GT stood for Griffin and Thornton, its two founders. And, you know, although they seemed extremely old to me at the time, given that I was 20 years old, I don't think they were even 50. They might have been yeah, they might have been just knocking on 50. Uh, one of them is still alive. The other one's dead. And uh, they had been at uh, a, an investment trust in London you probably heard of called Foreign and Colonial. And Foreign and Colonial uh, F&C, as it's now known, uh, was one of the earliest investors in the world internationally. It was an investment trust listed in the London Stock Exchange. And they'd invested, you know, in the 1800s in bonds for railways in the US, Argentinian infrastructure, all that sort of stuff. So Richard and Tom, who were the founders, set up their own company. And the idea was to invest in uh, Asia, uh, and particularly in Japan, but also in Hong Kong, and Philippines, Singapore, etc, etc. And all in stocks. So it was all uh, equities. Those markets were still not very well uh, known about or covered by foreign investors. And GT uh, uh, 
which was tiny when I joined, and, and the fact that it grew very big after I joined had very little to do with me, but it became a very big institution. They, they had lots of marketing power. And so when I moved to uh, San Francisco, uh, the fund that I was assigned to run, which was a U.S. fund investing in U.S. stocks, grew from, I would say, one million pounds to a billion pounds in a year, which in those days, in the mid-1980s, was a lot of money. You know, it was, they, were, they, were, they, were, they were great days because uh, you were meeting some amazing growth companies, uh, companies that weren't valued today like in the stratosphere, but were, because of the U.S. market being on its knees, were very cheap. And the thing is, Aaron, you and I, if we'd been there today, we would have reveled in the stuff that was around at eight, ten times earnings, 30, 40% annual growth things that you can't find today. So, you know, and if I'd had any money, which obviously I didn't because I, my starting salary was 5,000 pounds a year, um, it would have been a great time to invest, but it, nonetheless, it was a good apprenticeship for me. I was sent around everywhere. I was, you know, considered to be a hot analyst and I went with the boss, Richard Thornton to lots of trips, uh, lots of places. I, I don't know. Have you ever been to the Philippines? No, I have not. Well, you may know of a beer called San Miguel. Have you come across that beer? <laughs> I also don't drink, so no. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. But anyway, but, but, uh, anyway, San Miguel is the, if you go to the Philippines and you go into a bar or anything like that, San Miguel is the beer. It's the, okay. you know, well, I don't know what the Australian big beer is today. I know it's not Foster's anymore, but anyway. And I was assigned to do an analysis on the company San Miguel. Now, the things like this will come around again because they always do. It's not like the opportunities are always gone because they will return. But in those days, there were 50 million people in the Philippines. And the market capitalization of San Miguel, which had 90% of the beer market, was $50 million. So that my summary analysis was that for a dollar, you could get the dominant beer producer in the Philippines, but they also had the Coca-Cola rights in the Philippines. They also had Nestle and Carnation rights in the Philippines. Uh, they had the dominant ice cream brand in the Philippines. And for all that, you would be able to buy the company for a dollar per person. So, so simplifying the, you know, the, the, the approach and we bought 10% of the company. I don't know how many thousands of times it's gone up, but it was a, a remarkable investment, amazing investment. Yeah. Wow. Talk to me about the sale of this fund, because um, if I understand correctly, someone came along and bought this fund, which you were working at and um, you had a pretty big uh, payday. How did that come about? Like, why was the fund bought and what did that mean for you? Because uh, I think you became a multimillionaire pretty much um, by the age of around 28. So, I mean, what was that like? Yeah, well, there's a couple of things. Number one, the company that I originally worked for, GT, was bought um, by Lichtenstein Global Trust. And uh, so uh, I got you know, pay out on that one. I can't remember how much it was, but it was enough to buy the house that I have in Ibiza in Spain, uh, which I still have. And then the T of the GT set up his own company 
And I went to work with him and bearing in mind, I was very young and, uh, you know, this was a great opportunity. And that fund company was bought and I got, you know, a few, I can't remember how many millions, but I got a few million dollars uh, as a result of the sale of that. That was bought by Dresdner Bank, which was then a big German bank. And Dresdner itself, I think, was bought by Deutsche Commerzbank a few years later. But they paid me out. And, and then that was enough for me. And uh, my longstanding uh, business partner, Jane Sutcliffe, to go off and start our own business. Is this the business in Russia? Well, it was, it's called, was called Region Pacific. In fact, it still is called Region Pacific. Uh, it does different stuff. Now. It's in biosciences. It started off by investing in the same stuff that we'd done in Hong Kong, which was emerging markets, Asian markets principally. But I read somewhere around 1990, the beginning of 1994, that Russia was privatizing its um, industries through a series of vouchers. And so we hopped on a plane, went to Russia. It was a bit more difficult than that because there weren't sort of regular flights and uh, there weren't any credit cards in Russia, believe it or not, in 1994. And uh, so we had to carry cash with us. And anyway, we bought these vouchers. It was a hugely successful uh, investment. And we set up a fund for foreign investors to invest in Russia, which was really big and very successful until Russia defaulted on its uh, debts and devalued its currency in 1998. And the party kind of stopped, but it resumed. And um, uh, Regents Fund Management Arm, which is now owned by another company, has continued to do quite well. And Regent Pacific itself has paid out, I mean, it's paid out a lot of money, like 700 million US dollars in cash dividends since that date and looks and has made lots of investments. I mean, for instance, in Australia, uh, it invested in BC Iron, which was a very successful iron ore investment. And then it also invested in Venturex, which I don't know if you follow that share, but it's recently been incredibly good. It's still got its position there. Um, if I said it owned about 10% of that company, if you look up Venturex, it's been amazing. What's the three letter code? Don't know. Oh, uh, maybe VXR, sorry, VRX, VRX. Okay. I think I know the one. If I said it's up six or seven times in the last two or three months, I don't think I'm lying. But then, then I got enough money and I, I thought, right, I'm going to start doing things that, uh, you know, don't represent my need to, uh, to be on daily calls with clients and, you know, kowtowing to everyone. So I became interested in biotech and my partners and I have started a number of biotech companies. So a couple of them are listed and I got involved in real estate in Germany, which I still have. Um, and I got involved in, some not so good things like hotels, which I've still got. Not, not a great business, as you might imagine. <laughs> and uh, I, the, the biotech side has been very, very good. And then latterly, I've got really interested in uh, both the science of longevity, trying to, with my biotech partners in a scientific way, trying to uh, make people healthier in the latter part of their lives and also possibly in the future to extend human life. Uh, although that's some way off. And then uh, and then the food revolution that we're in at the moment, which I've written a book about called Moose Law, which um, 
uh, is doing very well. And we've, we've now become the largest investors in what's called cellular agriculture, which is growing foods, dairy products, materials in and seafood for that matter in um, in labs, which is going to be a very, very big industry. So I've branched out trying to do things that both interest me, have a positive impact and then uh, can make some money as well. Yeah. I know we've only got limited time, Jim. One of the things I thought would be really interesting to talk to you about is just to get some of your thoughts around entrepreneurship. And one of the things which strikes me, which you've been able to pull off and do really well, is get involved in a lot of different industries and things which aren't necessarily related to one of another. And you've seen to be able to do well in each one. Um, I mean, how have you sought out these opportunities along the way? Um, and how have you been able to excel across a mix of different industries? Well, it's kind of you to say that, but I, number one, I think that we need to, well, by starting out, need to focus. You can't try and do 10 different things, uh, partly because of the lack of capital for most people when they're starting. Uh, and secondly, just the sheer bandwidth that's required to, to try and juggle multiple things. In some ways, I think I might have done better if I'd stuck to fund management and done nothing except that in my life. And, you know, friends of mine have done incredibly well by being fund managers all the way through their careers. Some of them have retired and with very large amounts of money. But I've never had, I've been a kind of nomad. I've never really had uh, that concentration span. I like to do different things and be active creating a new business is particularly thrilling and exciting to me. So the first thing is you need to start by specializing and you need to build up enough capital, which I've now got to have the luxury of, of uh, spreading your bets across multiple sectors. But I do, I think that the most important things, Aaron, are curiosity, so, which I know you are. You know, just be curious about the world around you. Be open to any ideas. Don't dismiss anything as being harebrained uh, out of hand. Uh, the second um, is you've got to be very adaptable, and particularly so. I mean, it was less so in the time when I started work because, you know, people went to fixed careers. They did the same thing for basically their whole lives. But now young people are going to have to get used to changing their careers on a regular basis. Uh, and that adaptability and the ability to adapt is really important. And then the last thing, and I actually, I was watching an interview with Jamie Dimon, the CEO of, and chairman of JP Morgan. And uh, he was saying that, you know, there's no easy way to riches. I mean, I know that we know some people who've made tons of money in crypto or, you know, Mark Zuckerberg had a great idea and look how rich he is today or, you know, whatever. But there are very few people like that. And so the last thing is application, which is basically hard work. You will not get rich unless you're prepared to sacrifice time and effort to get there. And so curiosity, adaptability and application are the three key words as far as I'm concerned. And what that means, in effect, is getting up in the morning reading a lot, just being, you know, I'm not talking about reading the mail online or, um, you know, hello magazine. I'm talking about reading, uh, stuff that is 
relevant to what you want to be involved in or potentially involved in, uh, becoming, having a superior knowledge to really anyone else that you know in, in that field, making the night, the right connections and networking. And by the way, you'll find that even at the highest echelons, people are very receptive to talking to genuinely interested parties in what they're doing. Uh, and then, uh, you know, keeping on that really all day long and, you know, if necessary doing it seven days a week, um, you won't get to the, if that's your intention to build a business that's significant and make lots of money and have a large, uh, capital fortune, you won't get there unless you work hard. It's, it, it, there are no easy ways to riches. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm not really sure how to word this question, but I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> so that advice, I mean, it sounds great. There must be something you've done differently that has led you to reach billionaire status than something that someone else has done and they've, you know, they've worked hard, they've built a good business, etc., and they have a net worth of, let's say, $10 million. Like, what is it that separates you from that person? What are the actions that you've taken which has led to such different outcomes? Yeah, I think that, that's a great question. Well, um, I, I guess that this desire is number one. Uh, you actually want to have a lot of uh, assets and money, and I, I, I still suffer from an insecurity that means that even though I do have, by most people's standards, a great deal, for some reason I feel still insecure. And, um, I want to, so I keep on working and making or trying to make more money. Second is that you actually have to like it. So I do love it. You know, um, I get up at five every morning. Uh, it doesn't matter where I am. And after my daily exercise, I work all the way through to lunchtime. I work consists of mostly 
emailing correspondence. I don't do a lot of work on the telephone uh, because I find emails much more concise and much more to the point. Uh, and then in the afternoon, I either read, relax, or if I have to work, then I'll, because of time zones, I'll do some work. But uh, that's that's it. And you might say, well, what about downtime, relaxation, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's part of the sacrifice, Aaron. You know, you, you don't you don't get to go to the cinema on a whim or you don't go to, um, uh, you know, don't go for a, a sleep for five hours in the afternoon. I mean, that that's, that's the trade-off, basically. Is there also an aspect to it about how you've structured deals or structured your involvements with certain companies and also maybe something about very selective about what you get involved in like do you see things as some opportunities as obviously having significantly more upside than others and i don't know are those two aspects somewhat a factor yes i mean i i don't i work with partners i still work with the same partners i've had for many years uh i believe in team work so in all the businesses I've got, we're, we're, we're team members. You know, we, we either we rise or fall together. I'm not a solitary operator, uh, and but I have lots of businesses. So in one business, I might be a team member with you know different people to another business. So that gives me the opportunity of having 10, 20, 30 percent slices of multiple businesses. It's rare that I own, except for my top companies, businesses 100%. The one exception was in Germany, where, which was my biggest and remains my biggest investment, uh, where I own the whole thing. Because real estate is not really a business that you need any um, great insight in, except for the buying and the selling. And um, that... Uh, that's worked out very well for me, but I do believe that I, I couldn't function on my own. I really need, uh, to have, uh, other people around me in terms of focus. Uh, you know, I've made plenty of mistakes, Aaron. I mean, who hasn't? And as you get older, you, you accumulate more and more of them. But I, because of the years that I've been doing this, I have a good sense of, you know, what might work and what might not work. Um, what the pricing is, so that going in the price of, you know, a deal, you can be in the best company in the world, but if it's overpriced, then it's going to take you a long time to get your money back or to make a return. So I kind of weigh up in my mind, uh, the business plan and the quality of the person or people who are presenting it. And I'll give you an example in Dubai, uh, three or four, no, about a week ago, I met a friend of mine who's, um, 20 years ago came to me for, uh, you know, backing in his business, which I did. Um, and his company is now making nearly 300 million us dollars profit a year. I'm still a shareholder in it. It's been a remarkable journey and he's done it all himself. But my initial judgment on both his plan and him, and he's a complete, uh, completely dedicated, single-minded individual uh, was correct. And so a small investment has become one where 
my return on investment on an annual basis in terms of dividend, forget about the, you know, uh, is several hundred percent every year, which is amazing. How do you deal with things like self-doubt? I presume, you know, even at your level, that's still somewhat of a thing. You know, do you ever question, am I doing the right thing? Is this a worthwhile risk? Like, how do you manage those kind of doubts? No, it's a super question. Uh, you, uh, of course, we're all, you know, weighing stuff up and down when we make our investments. Uh, I don't have, let's put it this way. Um, I know that investments go wrong. I don't blame people if I, I'm put into an investment that's, unless it's outright fraud, which is very rare, uh, where I've made the decision and it's not worked out. Um, so, and I don't lose sleep at night over any investment, none. Uh, that having been said, because I'm, you know, I can't walk past an opportunity without having a look at it. Um, it becomes quite enervating because, you know, you're just, you, 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 you find it very difficult to switch off. You know, even if you're on a long haul flight these days, they have Wi-Fi. And so I just, I've. I, I probably need to go to some sort of, um, you know, resort for a month where they don't have any internet and switch off. But I'd be always thinking, you know, what's going on in the world? Where am I missing out on something? You know what I mean, basically. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's not a monastic existence in the sense that you, 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 at no point do you become like a Zen-like figure. I mean, I think there are some people who are capable of doing that. I mean, I imagine Warren Buffett is a bit like that. He's, you know, probably reads his report, makes his decision, and then that's it. And then once a year, he has another look at it. But I'm not like that. I don't know about you. What about yourself when you make investments? <laughs> uh, I mean, my investments are pretty few and far between. Uh, I'm more of a trader myself. So, you know, I don't really have any real conviction in, in my trades. I'm sort of in and out and very uh, quick to, to cut something that doesn't work. I love doing that as well, by the way. On, on, and maybe that's another layer of complication. <laughs> is that we I trade every single day in something or other. Do you? Yesterday, okay. Yes, it was the Turkish lira against the US dollar. Um, I just can't, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, like you, I just love the, it, it, I wouldn't say it's a casino because it's a considered thing. I'm sure it is for you as well. But it just gives a bit of edge to life, basically. I love it. So you're mostly active in uh, the currency market? No, gold, silver, platinum, uh, sometimes in oil, stock features. Yeah. Okay. Bit of everything. Just before we move off of entrepreneurship, I would love to ask you, what has been the greatest setback over the course of your career and how have you recovered from it? Yeah. Well, so in 1998, when Russia defaulted, the currency was devalued we had made a hundred million US dollars profit the year before for our management company, the fund management company. And literally one or two days, we lost half of that, uh, in the Russian imbroglio. And I remember getting a call from Morgan Stanley from someone who had been at university with me, who I knew who was asking for a margin call of $40 million. Now, $40 million may not sound like a lot today, but in 1998, it was a lot of money. 
and it was a lot of money. For, it's a lot of money for anyone now, I suppose. But um, uh, we just had enough money to satisfy that margin call. And it reminded me that, you know, all your eggs in one basket, very bad thing to do. So ever since then, I've done two things consciously. One is I tried to delever all my operations. So for instance, in German real estate, which sounds nuts, and it is nuts in some ways, we don't have any debt at all. I mean, owning real estate on a mass scale, it is a mass scale, with no debt, it's crazy. It's against all the MBA textbooks and all that sort of stuff, but it's my conservative, it's my uh, long-term pension plan, if you want to put it like that. That was one. I had a unfortunate incident with an ex-partner in Korea that caused me a lot of angst as well. It's in the past now, but it was a real issue. And it, those are typical of emerging market uh, you know, issues. And because we were very big in emerging markets uh, and had lots of people working there, it was you know, inevitable that the principal of the company was going to get involved in two or three uh, difficult situations. Those are the only times in business when I felt, uh, you know, strain, stress, and so forth. As you will remember, Aaron, you know, in March of last year, so just uh, 13 months ago, there were real gyrations in the markets. And uh, I was really calm, very, very calm. And I, you know, worked out what we should be buying and what we should sell, how we should reorient stuff. And I think that calmness comes from many years of experience and the knowledge that everything does bounce back eventually. Today, if you look at the markets today, you're going to think, well, are they priced to perfection? And probably they are. Um, it's always going to be opportunities, but uh, are we generally in a bull market which has run, its, run too high? And the answer is probably yes. And so if... You know, I'm, I'm actually looking now at how, how to protect downside rather than to take advantage of upside, which is in big contrast to 13 months ago. Jim, I'm going to push my luck here and ask one more question, see if we can fit it in. With regard to investing, obviously you are very big into meat alternatives and disruptive agriculture uh, at this point in time. So I guess that's kind of like you have a view on a sector which is going to grow. How do you position your investments and how do you yeah, how do you position yourself to take advantage and profit from a sector which you see um, has a lot of upside and growth potential? Like I presume you don't just go out and buy any company that's Related, you don't go and buy any alternative meat company. You you obviously have some way of determining which companies are most likely to succeed and which ones are more mediocre. Yeah. So, number one, quality of management, absolutely vital. Uh, history of management, uh, ability of management to present, forge away through the regulatory hurdles that are inevitable in the food sector, understanding of the market segments and whether consumers are going to be buying this stuff or not, and competent financial capability. Those are the key components of analyzing management. In terms of the industry, we need to spread our bets because this is going to be huge. And by the way, just to put it in perspective very quickly, 
The whole dairy industry will be out of business within 10 years. I mean, the whole of the business of milking cows will be gone around the world in 10 years' time. Uh, so we're, this is not science fiction or something that's far off. This is going to happen very quickly. In terms of meat, half of all the meat eaten in the world will be either plant-based or cell ag produced within nine years, i.e. 2030. Uh, products like collagen, uh, cotton, and leather will be produced in labs uh, within 10 to 15 years on an almost exclusive basis. Uh, and I realized that in Australia, you have a big agricultural industry. A lot of it is, of course, grain crops, which will not be affected uh, to the same extent as livestock production. But there is a massive change underway. And that's why I wrote this book, Moose Law, which is basically for people to understand why it's necessary and why it's happening. And, um, and I give all the profits to the Good Food Institute, which is a leading uh, advocacy group. So there's no, there's no commercial interest in this from my point of view. But we are in, the, in a massive change, which most people are not aware of. Uh, the total addressable market for these products is at least four times the size of the Australian economy. So it's enormous. And there is going to be a gut-wrenching change in the relatively near future. We're in the period at the moment equivalent to the horse and cart just before the car came on the market in the early 1900s. We're at that point. Uh, it, it's going to be good for humanity. It will be very difficult for some people, but generally speaking, very good for all of us. And so I need to think, find a way of taking advantage of that. And the best way to do it is to find the best managements uh, who have the best business plans and to diversify. So we have 14 investments in the sector. Those predictions you gave out, you were very, very certain about that's what's going to happen. What makes you so sure? At the moment, I, do you, do you, I know you don't drink, but do you drink coffee? Yes. Right. So do you remember, let's say 10 years ago, you go into, I know you don't have Starbucks in Australia, but you know, your no, good coffee shops, oh, you've got one or two of them, but you know, basically you have great coffee in Australia. And 10 years ago, the soya, almond, oat, rice alternatives were very thin on the ground. People didn't do it. And, and in the US, it was half a percent of the milk market, as an example. Today, it's around 25% of the milk market. And they're all plant-based alternatives. Coming up in the wings is something called precision fermentation, which identically replicates in a lab whey and casein that are two principal components of dairy products, including milk, cheese, yogurt, etc. They are they are not just replicas, they are identical to milk, but there is no cow involved. That's why I'm absolutely certain that this dairy industry will be gone in 10 years, because already Dean Foods and Borden, the two biggest dairy producers in the US, have gone bankrupt as a result of the tipping point reached with just plant-based alternatives. So uh, it's, it's a revolution that is here and now, and I, you don't have it, I don't think, in Australia, but there's a company called Oatly that comes out of Sweden, and their, their oat milk is on sale in Europe. They're about to go public at a 10 billion US dollar valuation. Impossible as going public, I understand, at a 10 billion US dollar valuation. Beyond Meat is nine or, nine or 10 billion US dollar valuation. So these are these are here and now. This is, this is not something that, you know, 
that you can hang around and wait for. Right. Okay, Jim. Well, I'm going to let you run. I massively appreciate your time. And if possible, I'd love to reconnect and uh, continue this conversation at some point. But uh, enjoy your day. And thanks once again for coming on. Thank you, Aaron. It's lovely talking to you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Chat with Traders.